You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us safely together again this afternoon as we open your word, as we seek for wisdom from on high. We pray for that wisdom that you have promised and that you will guide us and lead us into all truth. May the Holy Spirit be here in our midst to teach us, to guide us, and may we be faithful to what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who have been with us through the first half of this week, you know that we have been going through personal finance topics, and we have primarily been dealing with more of the nuts and bolts issues of money management. Yesterday we went through debt and things of that nature, but starting today and for the remainder of our time together this week, we're going to be shifting gears a little bit and looking at prophecy, particularly end-time prophecy and some commonly asked questions associated with it. So it's still going to be practical, I hope, in that it is not merely theory, but actual things that are actionable, hopefully, at the end of the day. And today, our topic is the question, when do we sell everything at the end times? Tomorrow, we are going to talk about the final economic collapse And then the last day together, Friday, we're going to tie everything together and ask the question, so what do we do about it? And we are going to sprinkle in some of that throughout, as you'll see in this presentation today. But no buying and selling. We know that in prophecy, there is going to be a time in which those people who do not receive the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. And so there is an instinctive reaction whenever things go awry in the world, whenever there is some sort of calamity or major world event or market turmoil, that the question arises again, particularly for the Bible students and the prophecy students among us, when is the time that we ought to discard all of our earthly belongings? And I will say, in the past year, I have received this question probably more than in any previous time. With COVID and the economy and the shutdown and the global nature of it, it is only natural, I believe, for people to start wondering about these bigger things and bigger questions and these bigger issues. And so we're going to try to address this question head on today. And by the end of today, hopefully there will be at least some clarity of a framework in which to analyze and to think about these things. But first, a disclaimer. I am making an assumption about our audience today, and that is that our audience has the basic knowledge about the end-time prophecies. So I'm talking Revelation chapter 13, chapter 14, the seven last plagues, close of probation, mark of the beast, Sunday law, those types of things, uh, merely because we would not make any progress otherwise. And so if you are uh, lost at any point or you feel like there are gaps of missing information, uh, this would be a great impetus for you to go back and read the book Great Controversy. That would be a great resource to review on some of these things. And also talk with your pastor if there's a Bible work at your church. Uh, I'm guessing there are probably some seminar class here that's talking about these things. Uh, Or, and I'm going to just make the plug right now, 
On Audioverse, there is a series called Last Day Events Explained by Dr. Norman McNulty, who has been a speaker here at Michigan Conference Camp Meeting, I believe, uh, that goes into much more detail, uh, explaining in an easy to, you know, a very accessible way the last day events and the timelines and things of that nature. So that's also a great resource if you uh, need more information. And also, savingthecrumbs.com, I've mentioned it every day. It's my personal finance blog, so there's other information there for you to peruse as well. So let's dive right in, and let's start in early writings, page 56. Houses and lands will be of no use to the saints in the time of trouble, for they will then have to flee before infuriated mobs, and at that time, their possessions cannot be disposed of to advance the cause of present truth. So we're, I'm going to be pausing throughout these statements to, to discri- discuss as we go along. So first of all, we're talking about the time of trouble now. This is the great time of trouble at the very end of time, after the close of probation. This is the time of trouble spoken of in Daniel chapter 12. When Michael shall stand up, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. There have been many times, in quotes, times of trouble throughout history. Times of persecution, times of you know, travail and difficulty for God's people. But this is not talking about those times of trouble and persecution. This is talking about the great final time of trouble. And it says that the, uh, at that time, the saints will find that their possessions cannot be disposed of. And this is really the key point that I want to bring out in this sentence. And that is to advance the cause of present truth. You will hear this theme over and over again in this presentation. It's going to come back again. So I just want to put that in your mind right off the bat. Let's continue reading. I was shown that it is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance before the time of trouble comes and make a covenant with God through sacrifice. If they have their property on the altar and earnestly inquire of God for their duty, he will teach them when to dispose of these things. Then they will be free in the time of trouble and have no clogs to weigh them down. So this statement makes it very clear that it is indeed the will of God for his people to divest themselves of their assets at some point. Okay, But when is that going to be? The statement tells us that we ought to have our property on the altar and to earnestly inquire of God for duty, and he will show us. So it doesn't sound like this is going to be a set period in time in the you know, prophetic timeline in which everybody acts in concert at the same time, but rather it is going to be a unique individual type of motivation uh, that God shows us individually. Let's continue the next page, early writings, page 57. I saw that if any held on to their property and did not inquire of the Lord as to their duty, he would not make duty known, and they would be permitted to keep their property, and in the time of trouble it would come up before them like a mountain to crush them, and they would try to dispose of it but would not be able. And I think this is really the quote that gets people a little bit anxious when it comes time to asking this question, because they've heard this quote. They've, 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 you know, they feel the, the, the pressure 
Like if, if it's too late, it's going to be like a mountain. And also this, this passage right here, it notice, knows what it says. If we do not ask God for our duty, he won't, he won't tell us when to sell. You notice that. So God is not in the business of prying the assets out of our grasp. Okay, let's keep reading here. We're going to summarize all of this as well in a moment. I heard some mourn like this. The cause was languishing. God's people were starving for the truth, and we made no effort to supply the lack. Now our property is useless. Oh, that we had let it go and laid up treasure in heaven. So this is important again. Notice what the what is the source of their regret. Those who held on to the property too long. The regret was not, oh, now my assets have lost their value. That's not the regret. The regret was not, oh, well, now I can't run to the, the, to the mountains fast enough. That was not their regret. Notice, what was the regret? The regret was God's cause could have used these funds sooner and I didn't get it to them in time. More souls could have been won if only I had known sooner. You notice the difference here. The motivation is for the cause of God. This will become clear why I'm hammering this point so much later on. Okay, let's continue. I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. Key point. But if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. There's a lot to unpack here. The first point is that if you had come to this seminar hoping that there's going to be a prophetic sign when this happens, right? Or when this, these three things happen in quick succession. You know, sort of like when Jesus predicted the abomination of desolation, right? When the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem, like, that's a sign and you run for the hills. If you're coming here for such a sign, I am sorry to break it to you. There is no such sign. And the spirit of prophecy makes it clear that the time of selling is not going to be at this precise moment, all of God's people, the saints, the remnant church, everybody sell everything right now. Sell, 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 run, run, run now. It's not going to be like that. The statement makes it sound like it's going to be in phases. It looks like it's going to be the Holy Spirit working on individual hearts at varying periods of time and more and more so as we near the end of time. And as well, it is even a phased divestment for each individual. Because notice, it's not just when to sell and it's not whenever you sell, you sell everything all at once. There is a picture painted here of how much do I sell? So it might not be everything all at once. It might be a stair-step type of phasing out of your assets. All right, we're going to summarize. All right, so we'll, we'll come back to some of these points. Counsels on stewardship, the next passage here. And this really, I believe, summarizes really the main thrust of the point of this presentation. Some may inquire, must we actually dispossess ourselves of everything which we call our own? This is really... Essentially, the question that we're asking, right? When do we sell everything? Is that really God's plan? Well, what does she say? We may not be required to do this now, 
but we must be willing to do so for Christ's sake. We must acknowledge that our possessions are absolutely His by using of them freely whenever means is needed to do what again? To advance His cause. This idea keeps coming up. And I want to bring your mind back to the days of Jesus. A rich young man came to Jesus and asked the most important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the story, the rich young ruler, Jesus tells him, uh, cut to the end of the story, Jesus puts his finger right on his issue. He says, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So did, did that young man receive a, the very clear message from the Lord of when to sell everything? Yes, but did it have anything to do with the end of time? No. And this is really the key point. Jesus has the prerogative to ask everything of us at any time. Is that true or false? Isn't that the commitment we made when we gave our hearts to him? When we were baptized into the body of believers, we're making this commitment. Lord, you're having 100% of me, not just of my spiritual person and not just of my body, but all my assets, my plans, my dreams, my aspirations. It's all yours. And so really the issue with when do we sell everything is largely not so much about the prophetic timetable. We are going to talk about the timetable, don't worry. But more the condition of our heart, the surrender of our heart, and the motive for, what, for why we obey. All right, let's summarize. We've already covered a lot of ground, but let's summarize what we've talked about so far. Based on the statements that we've read, there will be a time when we should sell all. Is that clear? Was that clear from the statements that we read? Yes, I believe we agree with that. And the selling of our assets may not be all at once. It may be over a period of time. It may be in phases. And, very important, it is an individual matter. God will make known the right time and the right amount for each of us. So it stands to reason. If ever there is a pastor or an evangelist or a, a ministry leader or a fundraiser or someone stands up in the pulpit or sends you a newsletter or on a, their YouTube channel or whatever it might be, and they declare, I have a word from the Lord based on my calculations and based on the signs that I perceive in the world, this is your last chance. You better sell everything now. And uh, give it to my ministry. That's what they say, unspoken. But what this tells me, based on the principles we've already discussed, we can know if somebody makes such a blanket general declaration, we can know that they are not speaking for the Lord. Okay? Because this is an individual matter between you and Jesus. All right? So I'm not going to tell you when to sell everything. Sorry to disappoint you if you were coming to find out when to do that. But we will continue to study here. And the next point here is that we must be willing to sell all anytime God asks. And we must be willing to ask him to show us. Because the statement made it clear. If we do not inquire, he won't tell us. God is a gentleman. He's not going to be rude and barge in and say, you know, you got to do this if we are unwilling. And finally, again, the primary motive is for finishing God's work and not 
protecting ourselves or maintaining our financial position primarily. So a lot of times when we look at, oh, the stock market is crashing again. When see inflation is going up and the money printing and, you know, uh, the housing market. And we're looking at all of these external factors and, of course, COVID, right, and shutdown and lockdowns and things. And we begin to try to think, okay, now maybe I need to sell now to preserve my net worth and all of these things. If that is our motive, and that is really the the trajectory of our thinking, perhaps we need to stop and ask if our motives are misaligned. Because according to the spirit of prophecy, the saints of God, they're going to be asking the question when to sell, not based on the external economic factors, but more looking at what can I do to finish the work? Amen? And so at this point, I need to interject. There is always the fear. There is the fear. Now, if God expects us to sell everything and dispose of all of our assets, how will we survive? How will we live at the end? Well, I want to share a promise with you. This is found in the same chapter in the book, Early Writings, where we were reading earlier. This is page 56 now. The Lord has shown me repeatedly. If the Lord has shown Mrs. White something, and she says, the Lord has shown me, we ought to pay attention. But when the Lord has shown her repeatedly, what do you suppose we ought to do? We we really need to pay attention here. This is what she was shown repeatedly, that it is contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. I saw that if the saints had food laid up by them, or in the field in the time of trouble, when sword, famine, and pestilence are in the land, it would be taken from them by violent hands, and strangers would reap their fields. Then will be the time for us to trust holy in God. And here's the promise. He will sustain us. It's not he might. It's not that he's, it's possible or probable or only if you meet these X1, XYZ conditions. No. If we are faithful, obviously, he will sustain us, it says. I saw that our bread and water will be sure at that time and that we shall not lack or suffer hunger. For God is able to spread a table for us in the wilderness. If necessary, we should send ravens. He would send ravens to feed us as he did to feed Elijah or rain manna from heaven as he did for the Israelites. Isn't that a beautiful promise? God will work a miracle if necessary to sustain his saints in the time of trouble. That is a promise you can take to the bank. Now, important disclaimer. Remember, this is talking particularly about the time of trouble. It is contrary to the Bible to make provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. So this is not an excuse for us to say, okay, well, that means I don't need to make any provision for any of my livelihood now. You get, you get the, the gist of what I'm trying to say. There could be the fanatical re- re- reaction to say, okay, then I'm not going to do anything because Jesus will take care of me, la di da di da We talked about this in previous sessions, and we have statements to, to buttress that point, the importance of supporting our family and things of that nature. So this promise is specific for the final great time of trouble. God will sustain us, even after we have divested ourselves of all of our assets. Now, let's get to the meat of our study. The question really still remains, I think, in many of our hearts. Sure, we want to follow God's will. Yes, we, I'm willing to pray. I'm willing to lay all on the altar. But Lord, can you be a bit more precise? 
Is there something in Scripture that can help us understand the signs and the seasons? Because we know we're not supposed to time set. As Adventists, we have quite a history with that. And uh, we know no man knows the day nor the hour. And we know better than to try to predict when certain things are to take place. But yet Jesus says it's possible to know when he is even at the doors. Isn't that right? It's possible to know the signs of the seasons, to know that we are headed that direction. And so that's the balance of our time together. We're going to try to synthesize a lot of the biblical prophetic principles that we know to see, can it give us a bit more precision to understand how we ought to relate to our assets and the end times, okay? So, this is a Sunday Law timeline that I quickly sketched together. And this is a very small snippet of what could be a much larger and more detailed end time events timeline. But for simplicity and for discussion, I've just zeroed in on the, on the sections that are relevant to our discussion. So on the timeline, you see that at the very far left, there is the little green section called now. That is where we are living. That's the period of history in which we exist right now. And we know that there is going to be a period in time or a point in time in which there will be such a thing called the National Sunday Law. And after the National Sunday Law is passed, there will be a progression until a point in time where there will be a death decree. You follow me so far? And the key point that I want to highlight here is that that transition from the National Sunday Law, the initial enactment of a Sunday Law, to the death decree, there will be phases. There will be progression through phases during that time. What that means is that when the Sunday Law initially arrives on the scene, it is not going to be immediate death decree, no buying or selling, and, you know, running for the hills and the mountains. There, are, there is a transition. And you notice that from the yellow to the red in the timeline, it is graduated, meaning it is a gradual transition. And I am going to support these assertions with inspired statements in just a moment. But um, one last point before we move on. I have broken down the phases into just two, mild and severe, for the simplest, just to be simple in our conversation here. But in the seminar, the series that I recommended earlier by Dr. Norman McNulty on Last Day Events, he has a, one of his particular episodes is on the four phases of the Sunday Law. And there are various prophetic scholars that have broken it down into four phases, and I believe there is good, solid evidence for doing so. But just for the sake of simplicity and for our discussion, I am just labeling it mild phase and severe phase. So I just want to put that out there for what it's worth. So how do we know that the Sunday law will progress in phases? Okay, let's take a look at this first passage from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 232. The light given me by the Lord at a time when we were expecting just such a crisis as you seem to be approaching was that when the people were moved by a power from beneath to enforce Sunday observance, that is a Sunday law, right? Seventh-day Adventists were to show their wisdom by refraining from their ordinary work on that day, devoting it to missionary 
effort. Very fascinating. Sister White describes a time in which a Sunday law will be passed, but she does not advocate for us standing up and protesting. You notice that. She says that during this initial mild phase, we are to comply as best we can to refrain from our ordinary work on that day, but instead devote it to missionary effort. We're not supposed to stand up and fight for the First Amendment, religious liberty, the law of God, Seventh-day Sabbath. She's not advocating for that at this point. Okay, let's keep reading. To defy the Sunday laws will but strengthen in their persecution the religious zealots who are seeking to enforce them. Give them no occasion to call you lawbreakers, she says. When we devote Sunday to missionary work, the whip will be taken out of the hands of the arbitrary zealots who would be well pleased to humiliate Seventh-day Adventists. When they see that we employ ourselves on Sunday in visiting the people and opening the scriptures to them, they will know that it is useless for them to try to hinder our work by making Sunday laws. It's important to make a distinction here, and that is that this initial phase in the Sunday law that Ellen White is describing, it merely requires us not to work on Sunday. It does not yet forbid the worshiping on the Seventh-day Sabbath. Neither does it compel the reverencing of Sunday. That's an important distinction here. Because if the law merely states, don't work on Sunday but we don't have to report to church on Sunday and we are still allowed to worship on Sabbath, Sister White says, go as far as you can to not give them the excuse to call you lawbreakers. Instead, devote that day to missionary labor. Go door to door. Give Bible studies. There are other statements to this effect that she says, if you are a writer, dedicate this day to writing your literature and your glow tracks or whatever else it might be. So the admonition is to be conscientious cooperators as best you can. So all of this is to illustrate that this first initial phase of the Sunday law, there is still opportunity for soul winning, evangelism, and outreach. Okay, that's the point I'm trying to highlight. It is a mild phase. But does it stay that way? No, it doesn't. The book Great Controversy now, page 607. The church appeals to the strong arm of civil power, and in this work, papists and Protestants unite. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. They will be be threatened with fines and imprisonment. Some will be offered positions of influence and other rewards and advantages as inducements to renounce their faith. So you notice here that things are getting a little bit more intense, right? And the statement itself makes it clear that Sunday, the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold, more decided, meaning there was a point in which it was less bold and less decided. And these people now who are advocates for the Sunday law, notice how they try to persuade the the Sabbath keepers to comply. They use the carrot and the stick. They dangle the prospects of rewards and inducements and advantages and says, hey, look, we know you have your beliefs, but can we sweeten the deal a little bit? Maybe promotion at work or a bonus 
or some extra, you know, stock options or whatever it might be. And then eventually they say, oh, you're not going to do that, huh? So, uh, okay, we're going to take you to court. We're going to sue you. We're going to threaten you with fines. We're going to punish you. We're going to cause you to lose your job. We're going to throw you in prison ultimately. And these are the types of things that are going on. And the fact that in this phase now, that there are still rewards uh, being offered, it tells me that this has not yet progressed to a point of no buying or selling. You understand my reasoning here? Because you're still able to access some rewards and advantages if you can buy or sell. And so what we see here is a gradual transition from the initial mild phase of the Sunday lot to something more severe over time. And ultimately, it results in a death decree. But from the National Sunday Law, uh, when it initially is passed, we are still, and I'm in the mild column here, mild phase, we are still able to keep the Sabbath, but we're merely required to stop working on Sunday. We are not compelled to honor Sunday. And Ellen White recommends us using these Sundays for missionary labor. And this is one of those things I'm just going to throw out there without a whole lot of substantiation, which was for the sake of time, but I think you will uh, agree with me and it can be corroborated in other ways. But during this period where a Sunday law has been passed, but there is still a measure of freedom for evangelism to take place, this is the period of time prophetically where we see the swelling of the loud cry. Loud cry begins before the Sunday law, but it swells to a loud cry. That's the time of the final outpouring of the Holy Spirit, also known as the latter rain. That's the period of the shaking that takes place. In Revelation 18, we see an angel, the fourth angel, coming down to, the, to lighten the earth with his glory, with the message, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, come out of her, my people, joins with the third angel message. That is this period. And there will be persecution. And in the book, uh, Last Day Events, I believe, it is also labeled as the little time of trouble. That's not an inspired term, but some people do refer, it, refer to that. Uh, that's during this time. And also the great spiritual revivals that we talk, we hear about uh, right before Jesus comes. This is the time in which it happens. And this is the period of time for the final decisions to be made between the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. Because you remember that the mark of the beast is not merely Sunday observance. The mark of the beast is when we are compelled to pick either obeying God or obeying man. When we are compelled to choose Sabbath or Sunday, that's when the mark of the beast becomes the issue that comes to a head. And so that, in the mild phase, that actually hasn't fully come to fruition. And so people still have an opportunity to make a decision. And that is why this period is known as the last great opportunity for evangelism. This, I believe, is also why Ellen White recommends us to not unnecessarily curtail the ability to spread the gospel by being, uh, you know, protesters standing up for uh, this, that, or the other thing, but really focus our attention on spreading the gospel during this period. Because gradually, we're going to move into the severe phase. And that happens when we begin to be compelled to honor Sunday and disregard the Sabbath. When that compulsion becomes reality, that's when the mark of the beast becomes the testing issue. And it becomes severe when the national Sunday law that begins here in the United States becomes the universal Sunday law all around the world. And you can see there are references here in various places in the spirit of prophecy that you can 
uh, reference. And also that in the severe phase, that's when we move to the time of no buying or selling. And we read about imprisonment and exile and enslavement. Uh, That also takes place during the severe phase. And it is somewhere in the severe phase, right around the death decree. No one knows exactly when probation will close, but it's around that period. And after probation closes, that's when the seven last plagues begin to fall. And that is the start of the great time of trouble. And so this gives somewhat of an outline, hopefully, for the framework of how I am using this timeline to structure our discussion today. But everything hinges on the Sunday law, doesn't it? And I like to call the Sunday law, the national Sunday law, the prophetic point of no return. How do I know this? Last day events, page 134. Why do I say that, rather? When Protestant churches shall unite with the secular power to sustain a false religion for opposing which the ancestors endured the fiercest persecution, then will the papal Sabbath be enforced by the combined authority of church and state. That's a wordy sentence. All it says is, when the Sunday law is passed, there will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. Meaning when the Sunday law is passed, that is national apostasy, and the way that this sentence is structured, and also it's repeated elsewhere, it gives the idea that there is no going back. There is only one conclusion that the world is going to hurdle towards once the Sunday law is put into place. And with that in mind, with that in mind, understanding that the, that point in time on that timeline, the Sunday law, it's a one-way street. Once we cross that threshold, then we are on, we're in the final movements. And we know the final movements will be rapid ones. And so I'm going to re- go in reverse on the, this chart and um, explain from right to left. So we know that there's going to be a death decree at the end of this period of time, but shortly before the death decree will be the period of no buying or selling. And so it stands to reason that in answering the question, when do we sell everything, it must, the selling must take place before the time of no buying or selling. I think that that's just illogical. And the period before that is what period? It is the mild phase of the Sunday law. And this is a period of time in which there is still great opportunity for soul winning and evangelism. But yet this is also a period that is past the point, the prophetic point of no return. Meaning it's our last chance. It is the last opportunity to save the remaining souls that are alive on this planet. It is the sprint now to the finish line. And so thus, this period from the beginning of the National Sunday Law to the ending of the mild phase must be the final window, the last opportunity to divest ourselves of our assets. Okay? Does that make sense, the, the reasoning behind how we arrived here? Now, it's important to mention a few things, and that is, some t- I think it's easy for us to hear something like this and automatically sit back and say, Whew, all right, so I don't have to worry about it then. <laughs> Not quite. Because you remember what we just discussed. We don't know how long this mild phase is going to last. And neither do we know how quickly or in what manner the freedoms 
and the institutions that uh, we have are going to start not being able to function. And so Jesus may, in fact, move upon his people, and this is now using my human reasoning a bit, not inspired, but it seems to make sense to me that God is going to want to stair-step the liquidation of the assets of God's people in a manner that the means can be efficiently dispersed and utilized in an effective manner. Because just imagine, if 100% of the assets of God's people are liquidated and dumped into the work at the last moment during this mild phase, how are we going to distribute and administer those funds? If our institutions are starting to get shut down, if persecution is starting to happen, if there is an economic unrest, it is not the most efficient use of means. But nevertheless, why is this the important period of time in which God does want there to be an inflow of means for the final proclamation of the loud cry? The reason is very simple. It's because we have been preaching about the Sunday law. I mean, it's a third angel's message, right? Don't receive the mark of the beast. That is our a key component of our message. It's finally happening. All the people out there that hear us and say, oh, you kooky Adventist conspiracy theorists, that will never happen. Haven't you read the Constitution? We have a First Amendment. That will never happen until it does. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, what else do you have to tell us? (laughs) And at a moment like that, we better be ready. Our institutions, the literature, the media, each of us individually, we better be able to give a Bible study on the three angels' message. Amen? And at that time, God's work is going to be a, need the means to make the final push to get the word out. I'll use another example. We have the health message as well, and we love to talk about natural healing and lifestyle and all of these things. Imagine, we had a, you know, let's say two years ago, we put on a seminar about how to naturally avoid, you know, the next killer virus. Two years ago, do you think, you know, we might have gotten some interest. Some people might have wanted to come. What about today? All of a sudden, everybody would, would die to know a natural, free, do-it-yourself, you know, natural way of, of boosting our immune system. And guess what? We have that message. And all of a sudden, the Lord, not, the, not that the Lord is in charge of the pandemic, but the Lord has placed us in position to spread the present truth. It's going to be the same type of scenario right here in that narrow window of time where the Holy Spirit is poured out and God's people are going from door to door, lightening the earth with his glory. And that is the last opportunity for soul winning. And that is the last chance for God, God's people to pour the rest of their assets into his work. Now, what about today? The National Sunday Law, yes, that's the point of no return. But what about today? How does that affect us today? Well, remember, Jesus has the prerogative to ask us to sell whenever. And it might be that, it, that God wants us to sell now, right? Depending on where you are with your situation with him, to prepare for that time, right? And so in this period of time now, and we're moving backwards, right, on the, on the green section, we know that the delay is still possible. We are to run the race with patience, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, and we are to occupy until he comes, but we still need to remember. We need to remember 
that God may still call us to sell at any time, maybe begin to wind down our investments or our portfolios or whatever it might be. Now, this is also an important thing I need to mention. And that is that this framework helps me answer another question that have kind of, that has kind of bothered me for a long time as an Adventist. And that is that as much as we preach about the nearness of second, the Jesus' second coming, it seems like sometimes we, like the, me, the method of our ministry sometimes seem to indicate we plan to be here for a while. Let me explain what I mean. How do we do ministry? What's our blueprint? And this is based on the spirit of prophecy. We go to a new field. We build schools, health institutions, hospitals, sanitariums, lifestyle centers, publishing houses. We plant churches. We have industries. We have outpost centers. None of these types of methods of ministry speak like, it doesn't sound like sprint language. You understand what I'm saying? Like a lot of these institutions takes years of investment. It doesn't take, it's not an overnight type of thing. It seems as though we plan to be here a while. Maybe you have never asked this question, but for me, it's like, why did God tell us to operate in this way? I believe this framework actually helps to answer that question. And that is because prior to the National Sunday Law, it is still possible for there to be delay. The winds of strife may be held back a little longer, Out of mercy, right? God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are statements to the fact that when God's people weren't ready, God held back the winds and said, let's give them a little more time. And God allows these institutions to be in place, the infrastructure to be put in place so that when the final movement comes, we have the capacity to lighten the earth with his glory. And so imagine if we had burned our candles, so to say, on both ends, and we just do quick and dirty work all throughout Adventist history and have no institutions, no infrastructure, no organization. When the final movements come and we're like, let's get out there, we're just a loosely affiliated band of, you know, willy-nilly, you know, vagabonds. I think God knew what he was doing. And so this framework tells us that in the meantime, yes, we ought to occupy till he comes, do diligently the work that lies before us, understand and still apply the principles, be prudent and all of those things. But when the National Sunday Law comes, it's like we're a marathon runner that now has crossed the home bend, home stretch, and we see the finish line. Prior to that, what do we do? Just like we're we're told, run, we're supposed to run the race with patience. That means pace yourself, right? Because we don't know where the, where the finish line is just yet. But once we have the National Sunday Law, the point of no return, prophetically speaking, and we're around the bend, we see the finish line. At that point, it's time to just burn every last calorie that we have. Mad dash to the finish, and let's pour all of our assets into God's work. And so that is why that mild phase is the final window. All right, so very quickly, what should we do now? Okay, and we're actually going to, come back to some of these points in uh, the last presentation this week, but let's take a look at this statement. Evangelism, page 221. Jesus has told his disciples to watch, but not for definite time. His followers are to be in the position of those who are listening for the orders of their captain. They are to watch, wait, pray, and work as they approach the time for the coming of the Lord. But no one will be able to predict just when that time will come, for of that day 
an hour, knoweth no man. Now, watch, wait, pray, and work. That sounds a little bit more like marathon language than sprint language, if you understand what I'm saying. You will not be able to say that he will come in one, two, or five years. Neither are you to put off his coming by stating that it may not be for 10 or 20 years. We are not to know the definite time either for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or for the coming of Christ. So the time, notice, no definite time either for the coming of Christ or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we we saw a correlation between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the Sunday law. So there is some relationship there. And Jesus put it succinctly, occupy till I come. And here's an important statement, last day events, page 17. Many will look away from present duties present comfort and blessings, and be borrowing trouble in regard to the future crisis. This will be making a time of trouble beforehand, and we will receive no grace for any such anticipated troubles. Mercy. If anything, I need grace for that time. I don't want to exhaust it. So what do we do? Let's do what we already know. Okay, learn to live a simpler life. Be content with what we have. Learn how much is enough and be satisfied with it. This is hearkening back to what we discussed earlier this week. Gather up the fragments. That state of occupying, right, puts us in a state of mind that we are ready whenever the time comes. We talked about this yesterday. Get out of debt. Imagine if our assets not only are a mountain coming down to crush us, but our assets also are owed to the creditor. They're really going to come after us, Right? And if we haven't yet, now is the time to start or to continue giving faithfully, regularly, and sacrificially now to advance God's work. Deathbed charity is a poor substitute for living benevolence. Some people say, oh, I'll just leave it to God in my will. I'll just let it grow and God will have more. As if God needs our money, right? It's not about the amount. It's about our hearts. And moreover, If we aren't faithful with, let's just say, 10%, right, the time, probably more than that once you factor in offerings, but let's just use that. Let's let's say we're not able to be faithful with our 10% today in a time of peace. What makes us think we can be faithful with 100% in a time of trouble? Maybe to frame it in a more positive light. Generosity is like a muscle. If we don't exercise it, it gets flaccid and atrophied. It needs practice. Just like Ellen White had the vision about the green cord, the faith that had to be constantly stretched and stretched and exercised, our generosity muscle is just like that. Sacrificial giving, systematic benevolence is a character development trait that prepares us for the time when we do need to give 100% to the Lord. And also during this time, while we still have needs, we can save and invest for them, but no when enough is enough. We aren't to be like the rich fool, hoarding up, building barns and bigger barns, and saying, take thy ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And if we do have assets, we ought to have an exit plan for how to liquidate our investments in a quick and orderly manner. It's not to say that all of our assets must be liquid. That's not my point. My point is if we do have a portfolio of various assets, let's think through how it must be divested should the time come. We should have a plan. And... In, in modern vernacular, we call that estate planning, but estate planning for the Adventists is not just when we die. Because by the Lord, by God's grace, we'll see him in the clouds without seeing death, right? And so we want to think how to liquidate in the time of need for God's work. And of course, what we mentioned earlier, the statements we read, we ought to seek the Lord and ask for wisdom 
and he will make known the right time of when to sell and how much to sell. And we must, we must maintain the motive to finish the work and not merely to protect ourselves. That's the key, is to finish God's work. It's not to protect ourselves, it's not to maintain our financial position, it's to finish the work. And now this next section I added after version 1.0 of this presentation because I realized probably need to address this. In a presentation like this, it's easy to fall into two extremes. One extreme is really the one that we've been talking about now, and that is having the spirit of saying, my Lord delays his coming. Saying, oh yeah, okay, if there's a time before this, or mild phase of the Sunday law, I'll just wait until then. Well, just remember, we must be willing to sell all whenever Jesus asks, whether it's a rich young ruler or Lot's wife. They failed that test. We don't want to fail that test. If the Lord asks us today, we ought to be willing to give him all today. Now, the second extreme is the extreme of saying, okay, if the Lord wants me to sell everything then, I'll just sell everything now. We can't outgive God, right? We can't, we can never give God too much. That sounds like such a holy statement. But is that really true? We ought not to neglect providing for the comforts of our, and conveniences of our family in the meantime. So I want to tell you two stories to illustrate each of these points. So I have a friend who was a dentist and he had a young family at the time and he felt convicted by the Lord to move his family out to the country. We have statements, right? We have counsel to do that. Take our children out to the country. He started another dental practice, very successful dentist, dental practice. His children were out there in the country, nice home, successful and all this. And then the Lord laid on his heart to become a missionary in South America. Didn't have anything to do with the Sunday law or time of trouble or anything of that nature. The Lord just called him. And so what did he do? He sold his practice, sold his nice country home, packed his kids up, moved to South America. And now he's running a outpost center down there and his kids speak fluent Spanish. And, by the, and, and he's a Korean guy, Korean family. So you, a couple of Korean guys running around speaking fluent Spanish, you know what happened. They answered the Lord's call to be missionaries in South America. So you see in a situation like that, the Lord may call any of us to such a life, and we ought to have the willingness and, and, and surrender to say yes, okay? But then on the flip side, there was a young mother who came to me in tears one day. It was at a convention not like this one, not unlike this one. And she said, my husband, he pays a faithful tithe, and he pays a faithful second tithe. And she's crying, and I thought, okay, I'm not sure I follow what's wrong with this picture. And then she said, I'm struggling to pay the bills. I can't put food on the table. Our marriage is in disarray. And he tells me that it's because I don't have enough faith and that we need to give God a third and maybe even a fourth tithe. And then that would be the solution to all our problems. Sorry to say, sounds like her husband was a deadbeat. Going to call a spade a spade. He wasn't being responsible for providing for the needs of his family and his young children. He had this mindset, well, we can't outgive God, so I'm going to give him everything right now. Wouldn't you know it that Ellen White actually dealt with this exact situation? Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 5, Letter 9, 1888. Notice what she says here. Brother Leiniger's family lives in accordance with the principles of strictest economy. They did not have a carriage until I told them it was their duty to provide one for Sister Leiniger, 
Ladies, how would you like it if Sister White came to your husband and said you have a duty to buy your wife a car? Wow! Brother Leiniger had conscientiously decided not to build a convenient woodshed and kitchen for his large family because he did not feel free to invest means in personal conveniences when the cause of God needed money to carry it forward. Did this man have good motives? Yes, he had good motives. He wanted to give to God's work. And so he was so frugal that he wouldn't even build a woodshed for his wood, uh, for, for, you know, the firewood, and he wouldn't build a kitchen for his wife. He wouldn't get a carriage for her. I tried to show him that it was necessary for the health as well as the morals of his children that he should make home pleasant and provide conveniences to lighten the labor of his wife. So Mrs. White not only says, you need to get your wife a new car, you need to get her a new kitchen too. Now, of course, wives don't take this home and don't, don't take it the wrong way. There are going to be a lot of unhappy husbands. <laughs> yeah, that guy, he said, I need a new marble countertop. Hmm, Sister White said so. But the point of this statement I'm bringing out The point I'm trying to say is that it actually is possible to give too much. God does not require us to rob our families and our loved ones of what they are rightfully owed, what they rightfully deserve, to give to the Lord's work. And we ought to keep this in balance with everything else that we've talked about earlier today. Okay, So I'm trying to maintain us on the straight and narrow here. And the Bible illustrates, or not illustrates, but states very clearly in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We need to keep all things in balance. Provide for our loved ones, but yet be willing to sacrifice for Jesus. And so here is the final statement for this session and the summary of our study today. Avenus Home, page 373. There are poor men and women who are writing me for advice as to whether they shall sell their homes and give the proceeds to the cause. There it is again, for the cause of God. These are poor men and women. When they ask to sell their homes, they are literally asking to sell everything. Should we sell everything for the cause of God? They say the appeals for means stir their souls, and they want to do something for the master who has done everything for them. I would say to such, It may not be your duty to sell your little homes just now, but go to God for yourselves. The Lord will certainly hear your earnest prayers for wisdom to understand your duty. That is a promise. That is a prayer that God will always answer. And so that is really the the conclusion here, it is, it might not be your duty to sell right now, but for Jesus' sake, we must be willing to. And so, in conclusion here, just want to bring our attention to the story, the narrow way. Second uh, volume of the Testimonies, page 594, it's the chapter's called An Impressive Dream. Ellen White saw, in vision, God's people traveling to heaven, laden down with all their worldly possessions. In carriages, they have horses, they have packs, setting off to the heavenly their heavenly home. And as they journey along, the path gets narrower and narrower. On one side, there's a steep cliff going up, and then the other side is a chasm going down. And one slip, and down you go. And as the road got narrower and narrower, they had to leave more and more of their possessions behind. 
Their carriages were the first to go, and then their horses, and they're carrying their packs, and they had to leave their bags behind. Eventually, they even had to take their shoes off. But from above, a cord comes down to give them to steady their way. And eventually, they have to put all of their weight on that cord, crying, we have hold from above. They swing on that cord across the chasm to their heavenly home. This is an illustration of the saint's journey heavenward. Yes, we will have to divest ourselves of our assets at some point, but that's not the focus of the story, is it? The focus is that we shall have hold from above. We can have confidence in a God who will protect us, and we can be confident in a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. So the condition of our hearts, how is it with us and the Lord today? Are we willing to succeed where the rich young ruler failed? Will our hearts be right should the Lord make that request of us today or any day? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you for your prophecies. We thank you for your mercy and for the compassion you show us as weak, feeble creatures of dust. We're thankful that we can be co-laborers with you in the work of saving souls. Lord, may we have that heart of sacrifice, that willingness to give all whenever you shall ask. And yet, at the same time, may we be faithful with the means you have given to us in our management, that we might give glory to you and provide for those that you have given unto our care. And Lord, until you come, help us to remain faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.